This is the Positive Psychology Podcast, episode 101. Welcome to the Positive Psychology Podcast, bringing your earbuds the science of the good life. And now your host, Kristen Trumpy. Hi, my name is Jamie Betts. I'm Head of Recruitment Solutions and Virtual Reality Assessment at CAP. Um, we are um, leading a strengths-based assessment experts based in the UK. Um, my own background is approximately, I think, about 17 years now um, of working um, in assessment and selection. I've been at CAP now for six years, and uh, a couple of years ago, I started work on developing the world's fir- first virtual reality assessment platform, which launched in September uh, of this year. Um, and um, and yes, here I am. Cool. Thank you very much, and welcome to the show, Jamie. Thank you. Before we get going and talk about you know some of the technical aspects and stuff, I would really like to um, dive into how that came into being, and the reason is that I'm interested in in sharing so that people kind of have an idea how these um, these kind of innovations take place. So, um, what 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 triggered this? So it was um, a series of um, coincidences, really. I've always been uh, what you might call a technology geek ever, you know, from a, a young age. And um, a couple of years ago, um, I attended a technology demonstration of some early prototype virtual reality hardware that was not, at the time, commercially available. And um, I was placed, I didn't go actually for work purposes. I went because I was personally interested in in seeing it. I hadn't even considered that I could use it in my profession, as it were. So when I attended the uh, the demonstration, I was placed inside virtual reality. And this is the kind of virtual reality which is known as room scale um, or full virtual reality. So um, when you're in this kind of virtual reality, you're placed in in a large room in real life, which is empty. You place the headset on, you have something in your hands, tracking your hands, and then you're free to physically walk around. And your movement in the real world is accurately recreated in the virtual world. So there's no disconnect between what you see and what you feel. It's vastly more immersive than, you know, the kind of virtual reality people might have on their phones at home or or similar um, experiences. And so I was placed in this white room um, in, in virtual reality and I could walk around and uh, I could blow up balloons and tap the balloons with my controller, and I, I could feel a little tap when I touched them. And at the time, I just thought, oh, well, this is, you know, this is very immersive, very impressive, and quite fun. But it wasn't until something specific happened that my mind began to race. And what happened was um, one of the balloons drifted down towards my feet. Now, on instinct, without even thinking about it, I swung my leg out to kick the balloon, but there was a slight problem. My legs weren't being rendered in virtual reality. So what happened is I swung my leg out to kick the balloon, I looked down, and then I had this moment, a couple of seconds of sheer panic, sheer terror, that I couldn't see my legs, and I just couldn't fathom what I was seeing. I just couldn't process it. So I panicked, and then of course I remembered I was in virtual reality, but for a few glorious seconds, I'd actually forgotten that I was in VR. And 
that moment, um, and they call that presence in virtual reality. When virtual reality is done right and it's done well, your your brain just accepts it as real, and it's very easy to lose yourself in it and forget you're actually in VR. So, um, in that moment, I thought, God, something really powerful happened to my brain there. It was convinced that I was somewhere else, and I'd forgotten about the the actual world, and I was just engaged in an activity, being myself. And then I thought, well, hold on. If we can harness this, if we can generate this thing called presence where people act naturally in, in VR without even realizing it, then surely we can use it to assess people and surely we can make accurate predictions based on what they're doing in VR and, um, uh, and, and make predictions, therefore, of how they will perform in, in real life. So that, if you like, was the moment um, and it was you know, a complete coincidence um, when, when the, the stars aligned. You know, when my, my when my interest in technology and my in my professional interest in assessment came together, and I realised that actually, you know, we could do something with this, and that's kind of how it got going. All right, cool. So I I, I just want to pull this out just to to make it really clear to the listeners that the particular events are coincidences, but this is I think almost any founder story, any any story that kind of has a similar theme sounds like this, actually. So it's always people looking at being interested in something and dabbling in it and, and then maybe uh, connecting it to another deeper interest that they had. So the deeper interest was technology, then just following your curiosity and um, going along and then doing that. And then you actually see the opportunities. And that's the important thing. Like, probably we are all surrounded by these things but but they don't happen other people don't have that story because they they did not maybe have the interest and the skills and and the particular intersection that you had to kind of start this thought process i think that's absolutely right and i think the other thing is is luck plays a huge part in all of this you know and um I'm very fortunate to work in an organization which is, you know, entrepreneurial, um, doesn't mind taking risks and, and so on. And so when I had this experience, of course, we, we didn't have a product. We, you know, nobody had a product. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I spoke to our um, CEO, Dr. Alex Lindley, and I, you know, I, I said to him, look, I've had this experience. Can I have some cash? Because <laughs> you know, actually what I'd like to do is some research to find out if the thing that I experienced was just a fluke or if it's something that we could recreate, that, that feeling of total immersion. Um, and so, um, uh, you know, all of the things you mentioned are, of course, true. I think that the, the other factor to, to kind of add on top is, you, you know, it's right place, right time, isn't it? You, you know, if, if, if the stars are aligning and the boxes are all ticked and you're, you're lucky, um, that, that, that plays a big part as well. Yeah, I agree. So, so what were the the initial challenges once you started um, thinking about doing something with this? Well, the biggest challenge is that um, a lot of people thought it was crazy. So, um, you know, I would speak to people who whose only experience of virtual reality was maybe using their mobile phone and made them feel sick, and it wasn't a very good experience. And because they hadn't experienced what I'd experienced, they couldn't see the potential. They couldn't see that actually this this could be used for behavioral assessment. And so that was the, the biggest challenge was overcoming skepticism, people thinking it was a silly gimmick, that it wasn't appropriate to spend money on it and all the rest of it. 
And so, uh, you know, had to put a, a business case together. I was given initially quite a modest budget, a research budget, um, which I spent on some hardware and, and setting up some experiments and running initially 40 volunteers through a series of structured VR experiences, just trying to test the boundaries of what was possible. And, you know, how do human beings react in a life-threatening situation in VR, for example? Well, there was no research. I looked and looked and looked and nobody, there was, no, there was nothing around how VR um, could induce stress. There was nothing around how VR induced natural behavior. There was nothing. It was just, you know, I was just staring into this void. So I thought, well, God, there's a lot to do. I mean, the first thing we have to do is prove this thing works and prove it isn't a silly gimmick, you know? And that's probably the, the biggest initial hurdle to, to overcome. And that's why I set the research up in such a way that um, we would answer all of those questions. Um, so I think that once the research was underway and people were participating in it and, and word was getting out, you know, within the organization that I work in that this was happening, then people were more, I think, curious than anything. But they didn't really think you know, necessarily that it was something that was going to work until, of course, I published the results of the research, which were emphatic and, and conclusive. And that was really the turning point when actually people realized that, that no, this isn't a gimmick and we're really onto something here. And it's something that, that hadn't been done before. And that was both exciting and also kind of, as you can imagine, nerve wracking at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just want to kind of um, draw out another point, And that is that people are very enamored with skepticism. And, and what we barely ever talk about, we always talk about, well, we should have been more skeptical and, and if people wouldn't have been too trusting, then things would have gone, wouldn't have gone wrong and things. But what we, what we almost never talk about, maybe outside of at least entrepreneurial circles, is the cost of actually just thinking that everything is a gimmick all the time or that nothing is going to happen. And to me, this has certain parallels to another episode we did on technology where we talked about this um, podcast called The Pessimist's Archive, where they go and look at technology that was introduced in the past, you know, like the telephone or the Walkman, and then they look at the reasons why people think it's going to hurt you. And, and and basically what comes out is it's always the same kind of excuse. And we always think like, oh, we're actually talking about the technology at hand. We always think like, oh, I'm I'm just opposed to VR or I'm just opposed to this. Um, but somehow the same things that people talk about, they just go back hundreds of years. And it's just fascinating how we barely ever talk about, well, Cap would lose out an incredible revenue opportunity if it weren't for you pushing this right yeah and i think that's that you're right that's true of a lot of innovations um i think i think there is also something in people's skepticism that has to be recognized which is that people are often skeptical because sometimes are are innovative because they're new but they don't solve problems they don't they don't necessarily do things better um you know, so, I mean, there are, I think there are two kinds of innovation. There's what you might call incremental innovation, which is, you know, um, a faster, faster internet speeds, faster connectivity speeds would be an incremental innovation. But the game changing innovation, the original innovation was the internet, right? So I think that um, an innovation has to be um, uh, able to, to, to show the world 
that it can do something different and better. You know, just being new isn't good enough in itself. So I do understand some of that scepticism, but I think you're right. I think sometimes it can go a little, a little too far in the other direction. Um, and sometimes that's just because people feel threatened by new things or, um, you know, people have a vested interest in keeping the old way of doing things. Um, you know, and other times it's, it, there are more legitimate concerns, um, such as, well, this is, you know, this is unproven, we don't know that it works and so on. And I think that with any new innovation, of course, you don't until you've tried it and establish itself. Now, in the field of occupational psychology or assessment, that's, that's really important because if you're going to run people through tests, if you're going to run people through assessment, if you haven't got the data that shows that it works, that's a huge risk. I mean, it could open you up to litigation, it could open you up to tribunals, um, and so on. You have to be confident that the assessment tools that you use are going to work. And so the delicate thing about this particular innovation, assessment in virtual reality, is that we had to be sure in deploying it that it would do what it was supposed to do in a way which was fair, defensible, robust, and valid. And if it didn't do those things, my goodness, you know, we could get an awful lot of trouble and we and there could be some, you know, quite horrible consequences as well. You know, people not getting jobs that they deserve, not getting the promotions they deserve, so on and so forth. So I I appreciate and value skepticism. Um, I think it, it keeps you on your toes. Sometimes, um, uh, you know, you also have to keep an open mind to the new and, you know, if it weren't for organizations willing to take risks, um, a, an innovation would never gain traction. It would never gain the data it needed to be adopted more widely. So, um, I mean, we've encountered all kinds of reactions. We're quite fortunate because some of the organizations that we've worked with at early doors said, you know what, this is really cool and we're going to take a risk, you know, and if, and if it works, great, we're going to try it. Um, and that's what helped us um, as we built the full product and then took it to market. Without those innovators willing to take risks with us, um, we'd have never got to where we are now. Right. So can we just um, go back to the testing? You said you tested 40 people and I also read about it in your white paper. So could you just um, tell us a little bit about what you exactly did and what you tested out there? Yes. Yeah, so we wanted to understand if people behave naturally in, in virtual reality. So, um, you know, people may have heard of um, this thing called, you know, gamification, where people take tests in the form of games during a recruitment process, and that's meant to tell you something about them. And there's a lot of debate over whether it actually works. And, and to be honest with you, I haven't seen any compelling data up until this point to say that it does. And one of the reasons that, I mean, I personally think that is, is that when you're playing a video game, you know, you're not yourself you're transposing, you're not trans directly transposing your personality onto that video game character. You don't have, an, you know, a real investment there. Um, if I asked you to play a video game and walk off a cliff, you know, playing Mario, uh, the chances are you, you wouldn't think twice and you, you'd just do it. And whether you have a fear of heights or not wouldn't come into it. And I think that's a real problem for gamification, you know, because if you ask people to play an avatar that isn't them, um, then, then uh, you know, why would they behave as themselves? And if they don't behave as themselves, then you can't make accurate judgments about what they're doing and, and, and link it up with their real-life behavior. So the research was designed initially to establish and answer a simple question. Do people in VR behave as they would in real life? And so we set up various scenarios in VR, and we asked people to do various things. 
one of the most dramatic things we ask them to do, and I think all of our participants remember this very clearly, is we asked people to walk off a cliff. And it was a, it was a, a very realistic cliff. They were standing on top of the cliff edge. They could walk around. They could admire the view. Um, and initially, um, of those participants, not a single one of their own free will tried to walk off the cliff edge. Now, bearing in mind, they're on a carpet in an office. They're perfectly safe. Uh, not a single one tried. So, so what we then did is we prompted them. And we prompted them three times to walk off that cliff. And in the end, on the third prompt, we, was, you know, we were saying to them, look, you're on a carpet in an office. It's perfectly safe. You can just step off the cliff and nothing will happen. And even then, 60% of people refused to do so. And of those who tried, they were displaying a really strong physiological reaction. Legs were shaking. Palms were sweating. We measured um, blood pressure and pulse rate, and it soared. This is a, you know, this is a, you don't get this through, you know, playing a, a game on a flat screen, you know. These were real physiological reactions induced by virtual reality. And what this research ultimately showed very conclusively is that left to their own devices in, in virtual reality, people are themselves. They behave as they would in real life. Um, you know, when they're engaged in a task or an activity in the virtual world, they come out of the other end and, um, you know, they'll often say, well, I, I forgot I was in, in virtual reality or I forgot you were in the room. Sometimes when you're trying to give them instructions, they'll jump at the sound of your voice because they've forgotten you're there. <laughs> you know, or they'll look to you, um, what your position in the room, where your voice is coming from, and they'll say, oh, this is so weird, I can't see you. Oh, wow. Wow. So what this what this research showed for the first time, and, and you know, it's the first time it's been demonstrated, is that when it's done right, and it has to be done right, but when it is done right, full virtual reality um, can um, bring out natural behaviours, and through that, we can place people in situations in VR and make accurate judgments about what they would do in real life. And that's what the research showed for the first time, and that was vital, because without that, we couldn't build an assessment product. Right. So, so now that we have an idea of how that looks like, can you maybe talk about like one or two scenarios that you would put people through specifically for an assessment? Yes. Um, so for um, VR assessment, what we've done is we, um, we built um, a, a product, an off-the-shelf um, VR assessment platform, if you will. At the moment, it consists of 12 different environments, um, we're designing and adding more as, as time goes on. Um, but each of those environments assesses a particular behavior or aspect of cognitive um, uh, preference. So to give you an example, um, um, without giving, it, giving the whole thing away, um, uh, there, there is um, you know, a very simple example would be we place people in a situation in VR. They always start in what we call the reception room. It's like an acclimatization room. It looks like a reception room. It's got a coffee table. There's a nice sofa. You know, there's a nice desk, uh, so on and so on. It's just to get people used to being in VR because there, there is sometimes some anxiety that people have going into VR. And what this does is it enables them to relax, uh, see there's nothing scary about it. It's very natural, very instinctive. It isn't like playing a video game. Uh, you know, they're just being themselves. And once they are relaxed, then we, uh, they move themselves to the assessed environment via an elevator. They step in the elevator. We tell them which floor to go to, depending on what we want to assess them on. 
elevator door closes, in the background the scene loads, door opens, it's all seamless, there are no loading screens, it's all very natural and it, and it feels very immersive and seamless. And that's important because we want to keep them, their minds in VR. We don't want any you know, jarring experiences bringing them back to the real world. We want to keep them in, in, immersed in that environment. Uh, and then um, they may be faced with a simple task or a simple challenge. Um, and let's say we wanted to measure you know, their natural level of persistence. What we can do through software, because remember, this is all controlled through software, is we can set up a particular challenge that for various reasons might be impossible or things start to go wrong. And we then measure how they respond to that. Do they show signs of frustration? Do they attempt to reconfigure what they're doing? At what point do they give up? Um, you know, so on and so forth. And the huge benefit over doing that to, you know, an assessment in real life is it's entirely consistent. Every single candidate or participant going through the assessment gets exactly the same experience. So you don't have to worry about administering and setting up these complex assessments. It's all done for you in virtual reality. What we might do after then is move them to a different environment to assess something else. So we might say, okay, um, uh, we want to measure their analytical thinking. So we'll take them to an environment where in, in the virtual world, they might be in a laboratory, for example, uh, and they're required uh, to solve some, um, some challenges within that laboratory, running some experiments or whatever it might be. So, you know, depending on what you want, what you want to assess would, would then dictate the environment um, uh, itself. Um, but as I say, at the moment, there are 12 environments and um, we're constantly adding new ones. I think the one limitation we have at the moment is it's a hardware-based limitation. So at the moment, you know, the best VR systems available, um, you know, for, for what we need them for, um, don't have entirely accurate finger tracking, for example. And that slightly limits what you can do. You can pick up objects and press buttons and all the rest of it, but you can't do things like use a virtual keyboard. And we've been developing the platform. We work with the constraints of the technology. But in spite of that, even right now, you know, we can assess, I think, about 20 different behaviors with the um, VR assessment platform as it is. And as the technology matures, we'll be able to assess more and more um, uh, uh, behaviours um, as time goes on. Right. So you you can you offer people can kind of um, basically rent that to use it for their own assessments, or how does that work? Yeah. So it's um, uh, so we launched in September, um, so a few months ago, and we've already had some some major organisations um, uh, uh, take up. Um, use of the VR assessment platform. Um, organizations like uh, BT, um, Lloyds Banking Group, Thomson Reuters, um, and so on. And the way that they're using the platform is one of the greatest challenges in assessment at the moment is that people are so incredibly prepared for traditional forms of assessment. So if you're hiring somebody, let's say you're, you, you run a graduate scheme and you're hiring hundreds of graduates and you're running assessment centers, well, you're probably gonna do a role play, you'll probably do a group exercise, you'll probably do an interview, but the problem is that all the, all the applicants know that and all the information's available online. So how do you get a true reading of who somebody really is when all you see is preparedness? It's a huge issue, a huge challenge. The only way sometimes that you can cut through that polish, that preparedness to who someone actually is is by doing the unexpected. 
So the, 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 the very powerful thing about VR in that context is that you can place people in situations they've never encountered and possibly never will encounter, and you can bring out evidence of the behavior that you're seeking to measure, or otherwise, as the case may be. What that means is that you have a different lens on performance, preference, and aptitude, which you otherwise simply cannot get in the real world. So in the context that it's being used by these organizations, they are running their traditional assessment processes, but they are also running at the end stage, you know, when the, when the candidates come in and they're assessed, they're running VR-based assessments as well. And what we're finding is that when it comes to making hiring decisions, and I've been in the room when this has happened, the, the business assessors who are making the hiring decisions will turn around and say, well, look, they might say that they're persistent in the interview and they might give a good example of that, but when they were in VR, they showed no persistence at all. And I'd rather trust the evidence from VR because it's what I see for myself versus what they're telling me. And of course, you know, you, you can say anything and you can't, you and people do. Um, but, and, and so VR there is solving a problem for these organizations, the problem of over-prepared, highly polished candidates who all look and sound the same, who've all been reading the same guides of, you know, how to, you know, how to, what to say in an interview online and, and how to behave in a group exercise and all the rest of it. Um, and if you want to hire people based on something more than how prepared they are for your assessment process, then VR offers a really powerful way of getting a glimpse into their soul that otherwise you wouldn't be able to get. Right. So how how do you combine then um, a recruit, like the knowledge of somebody who recruits like you um, with the VR thing? Because what struck me as... as um, slightly worrisome <laughs> as someone who tends to um for me for example persistence i think it's only of limited use if the if the task is actually impossible right so at work for example i see that a lot of people will just you know they run and they're very persistent or, or you know obedient but then it turns out that it's an import um, an impossible task and the better thing would have been to question the whole thing altogether so so when somebody just says oh i always go with vr i'm I that that's concerning to me. So so are you looking into basically fusing the human and the and the VR assessment or are you how are you thinking about that? Well, I think the first thing to do is 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 for any organization to say to themselves, what do we need to assess? Do we need to assess persistence? And if so, in what form? So you raise a very good point there around persistence, which is that it would be absolutely crazy, you know, for anybody to sit there and try for months to complete an impossible task that was clearly impossible. There's a question of judgment that comes into that. I think then it comes down to how the assessment is designed. So if it is the case that persistence is important, you know, to a degree, um, and you don't want people who give up too easily, then what you can do is um, using the VR form of persistence, for example, the way that it's designed is that it doesn't look like an impossible task. It would be unreasonable for the candidate to think it is impossible, in other words. Um, and, and that is what makes the difference, I think. So that comes down to partly to the assessment design. The other thing is that what you see is because the experience is entirely consistent and the same for everybody, is you start seeing a bell curve of performance. You get the really bad performers at the bottom of the bell curve, you know, who give up after one attempt. And, you know, I actually saw one participant um, uh, swear and give up after about 30 seconds. Uh, you know, that's an extremely bad end. 
um, you know, all the way through to the other end where, where people just will not let go. They, they, they refuse to, to leave the assessment. We've had that before. Um, you know, um, and you, you can tell that they've got this, this real hunger to finish the task. Uh, you know, and then you've got people in the middle who might try for five or 10 minutes or 15 minutes before giving up. But the, the beauty of that is that you have comparison points, you know, because you're running, you know, because we can run lots of people through this assessment, we can guide organizations and tell them, look, this is a good response, this is a poor response, and this is an excellent response, and this is what it looks like. And that brings consistency into the selection process and fairness, because then everyone's being judged by the same yardstick. Um, so I think the question around, um, uh, you know, should we use VR to assess people? Should we use human beings? I think, you know, I'm not saying this as a, you know, um, as a kind of fudge. I think it's, it's definitely both. And that's partly because when we run VR-based assessments, there is a human assessor in the room who is who is doing the assessment and running a debrief afterwards. So the VR enables the delivery of a really consistent, immersive experience with a lot of potential benefits, but it is not doing the assessing for the assessor. The assessor will still do that. Now, over time, with machine learning, it might be possible to automate that, but at this stage, um, you need that human assessor in the room to observe what's going on. And one of the very powerful things about VR is on a screen, you can see through the person's eyes what they're looking at and what they're doing, which is really insightful. It's like a window into the brain, you know. Um, so um, does that answer the question? Yes, it does. Now, CAP started out with um, with a basically a strengths consultancy, if I remember correctly. So I'm yes, that's right. wondering... Um, Selection is one thing, but are you thinking about developing strengths through VR? Um, yes, using it for development purposes. Yeah. So, so let's say somebody has you know unrealized strengths, and um, and yeah, I don't know. They want to practice those in VR. Yes, and um, uh, and it's and it's already happening. Um, so we've been work doing some some great work with a large insurance firm called Aviva. And we've put over 350 of their senior leaders through a VR-based uh, development centre. Uh, VR was a key part of that development centre, and they've been given, you know, feedback and um, and development pointers based on that. To give you an example, though, of how powerful VR can be in a development context, one of the environments that we've developed is um, a conference hall where you're standing out on the stage, and you know, on the one hand, you can load up your own slide deck into it, your own PowerPoint slide deck. On the one hand, you know, you've got your iPad in your one hand with your slides and you can move them back and forth. Projection behind you on a large screen showing a slide deck. And what it enables people to do is, in a perfectly safe virtual room on their own, in private, is practice giving those key speeches, those important presentations, in an environment that feels like the environment they're going to actually deliver it in. So, you know, it doesn't have to be a conference hall. It could be a boardroom, for example. And... I, I don't know if you've ever, um, you know, been on stage at a conference giving that that talk, but just the feeling of elevation you get on a conference stage. I remember I do them quite regularly now, and I'm used to them. But when I first started doing it, I was incredibly nervous because it's a very unusual feeling being elevated above all these people that have all these, you know, all these faces looking at you. Being able to condition yourself in virtual reality with your slide deck, walking around on the stage, working on your stage presence. And it's simple things like, you know, if you're coaching somebody, you can tell them, 
project your voice to the back of the room and they can see how far away the back of the room is, you know, because you have, you have perfect depth perception in VR. So all of those things lend themselves to development opportunities, which is simply not possible at the moment, you know, unless you go and rent out an empty conference hall and practice your, your speech, which isn't very practical. So that's an example then of how virtual reality is going to change how we can develop people in a way which I think will have tremendous benefits. I mean, you can imagine if you are a nervous public speaker and you've got that important presentation, you can um, record your session and play it back to yourself and work on the bits that you don't like. So um, it's, uh, I think from a development perspective, it's going to be interesting to see how it, how it does develop because we're probably only scratching the surface at the moment. Um, is there anything you would like to add um, that we haven't really talked about that you think is important? Um, I think just contextually, it's important to bear in mind that at the moment, VR technology right now is like, you know, mobile phones in the late 1980s. You know, those mobile phones that you had to wheel around in a suitcase and you could make four minutes of a call before the battery died, you know. Um, VR technology is kind of like that right now. It's, it's impressive, but it's a bit clunky. As time goes on, and it's, we're already seeing it happening, we're already seeing new VR headsets being produced, new modes of input. As time goes on, the distinction between the virtual world and the real world is going to narrow. And it will come a point, you know, where certainly visually, probably within five to ten years, you won't be able to tell the visual difference between the virtual world and the real world. You know, we're getting there already. Now, that's that has, you know, you know, potentially quite big implications. But we're still a way to, uh, to run at the moment, and we still have to work on various other things. Like, if you are in a virtual world, how do you manage movement? It's one thing to put people in a room and let them walk around the room, and that's fine for what we're doing. But when you start going beyond that, if you have a virtual city, for example, well, how do you walk around it without bumping into walls and all the rest of it? You need to think about... Um, you know, artificial um, movement and, and so on. But we're on the we're just at the start of something very interesting. That's is the point I'm, I'm trying to make. And as the technology develops and matures, it's only going to get better, more accessible, more immersive. It is not going to be disinvented. If we assume any rate of progress whatsoever, then in the near future, the virtual world will look as convincing and as real as the real world. It will happen. So the use of VR in assessment and in development is here to stay. So I think the question to people isn't so much um, if it's a, a fad that's, that's going to pass. I mean, it, it, you know, that's absolutely not the case. You know, the technology is only going to get better. And as it does, um, it will bring uh, new opportunities and new ways of doing things in, in our line of work that we've, that we've never had access to before. And I think that's quite exciting. All right. Cool. Thank you very much, Jamie. I enjoyed this a lot. Uh, thank you very much. Um, thanks for that. It's good to talk to you. Thank you. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help us out by sharing it with your network and leaving a rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher. We would love to hear from you at kristen at strengthphoenix.com. For show notes and more, head over to www.strengths p-h-o-e-n-i-x dot com thanks for listening to the positive psychology podcast we're saying goodbye with happy yogurt <laughs>